Do you hear the words but just don't believe the speaker? Your intuition says lies, but you have no way to prove the deception. Sonic Polygraph software can create computerized evaluations that provide insight into a speaker's validity and intentions. Direction for Truth Radio can provide tools and solutions to help you make well-informed decisions. You have a right to know. Shari Edwards will help expose the cover-ups, provide substantiation to support your gut instincts, and out those who think we have no way of getting to the truth behind the manipulation. You're listening to Revolution Radio on freedomslips.com. Actually, this is the Sound Health Options Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards is taking some time off to work on projects. I'm not sure how that got in there. That's an old uh, intro for a different show. This is the Sound Health Options Show. <laughs> Even I was confused hearing that going, wait, am I in the right place at the right time? We used to do that show a long time ago. Um, I will figure that out. This is the Sound Health Options Show. Uh, with Richard Talk to Me Guy. <laughs> That's funny. That had me confused. Um, greetings, everyone. Uh, Sherry, as I said, taking some time off to work on projects. And today uh, we had scheduled uh, pet prana expert Denise Mange. But unfortunately, I think I made a mix-up in the schedule because she's not available today. She's with family. And I will have her rescheduled soon, but I have a great show with Jonathan Wright um, for backup, a really excellent show. And I just have one announcement. Uh, This is regarding the uh, just recently went through the House, the Farm Bill. Um, The title of the article is The Farm Bill is Chock Full of Anti-Environment Policy Writers. This bill just narrowly passed the House of Representatives. And just some bullet points, uh, some of the benefits of the farm bill, not for us, not for the planet, not for water, not for animals, not for anything, not for any species that we know, uh, and you know, certainly not for our health. Uh, weaker pesticide laws, contaminated water sources, this is going to repeal the Clean Water Act so that it would give uh, ag the ability to just dump stuff into tra- streams or pollute them or spray into them. More polluted waterways because they would allow, you know, open up permitting, allowing hazardous sprays, pesticides that would go directly into the waterway. It would weaken uh, toxic giveaway. It would weaken the restrictions on methyl bromide, a highly toxic pesticide that's done all sorts of bad things to people and is really bad on the earth microbiome. Uh, more wildlife at risk, um, and also it would threaten small farmers because it would help eliminate the conservation stewardship program, which promotes whole farm stewardship and sustainability in rural communities. So those are just a few things. If those are the things we know about, imagine what they might have hidden in there, since we know they like to, uh, particularly under uh, the uh, amazing stewardship of Scott Pruitt, um, everything he can do to support big industry and open the uh, 
I can't use any of those words, uh, open the uh, stream of uh, pollution into the environment. Into the environment is really just stunning. Uh, I will remind you now, because this is definitely one of those shows that you're going to want to listen to afterwards, because Jonathan Wright has so much great information, uh, so many decades of... Uh, Jonathan Wright is a medical doctor. You'll hear me read the intro as soon as I start. But Jonathan Wright is a medical doctor who's been doing this since the 70s, uh, inventing uh, not what he call what is called non-patent medicines, often botanically based. It means that they're not under the control of anyone. They're non-patented. And just a really always has been a thought leader, a smart guy, been, you know, wrangling with Western, traditional Western medicine for a long time. He's a medical doctor. Uh, just a really a great guy all around. And you can find the replay of the show by going to soundhealthoptions.com, clicking on the Blog Talk Radio Archive player, and you listen to the last five shows there. And I think that's all I have to say for now. And I'll be putting comments and answering questions in chat. If you have questions, feel free to put them in there, and I will answer. Okay, here we go. A Harvard University and University of Michigan graduate, Dr. Jonathan Wright is a forerunner in research and application of natural treatments for healthy aging and illness. Along with Alan Gabby, MD, he has since 1976 accumulated a file of over 50,000 research papers about diet, vitamins, minerals, botanicals, and other natural substances from which he has developed non-patent medicine, non-drug, treatments for health problems. Dr. Wright founded the Tahoma Clinic in Renton, Washington in 1973, where he continues to practice medicine while also serving as medical director. The infamous 1992 FDA Tahoma Clinic raid, the great B vitamin bust, was a major impetus for congressional reform of vitamin mineral regulation. Welcome, Dr. Wright. Well, thank you very much, Richard. You bet. I know we're here to talk about HRT or hormone replacement therapy. However, oh my I have we're, to ask, we're here to talk about anything you'd like, sir. Excellent. I love that answer. Thank you. I want to talk about. I am holding in my hand in real time why stomach acid is good for you. Now, this is a dog-eared old copy that I've had since it came out in a long time ago, '01, I think. And I understand there's a new issue of this book. And if you can give us either the bullet points or however you'd like. I, I just think that people do not understand. Well, no, let me rephrase that. I know people do not understand how important stomach acid is, how important and how life-changing hydrochloric acid can be to their diet when they have an issue, and how scary it is. I think hydrochloric acid needs a new name. But that's a separate thing. And really, talk about the importance, because everything that we talk about from here, even if you're eating the most amazing, organic, flawless, beautiful, hand-picked diet, if you have stomach acid issues, you're already in tricky waters. So please, talk to us about that. Okay. Well, that book is just as relevant today as it was then, and research since then has even underlined how important uh, it is having normal digestion, which starts, of course, with chewing and swallowing, but after that, when the food plops into the stomach, 
it gets bathed with acid and a digestive enzyme called pepsin, whose chief duty is to do the first big job of chewing up all the protein in the diet. And yes, a little bit of it gets chewed up later on, too. But the first and foremost is the acid and pepsin effect. And without that, not only can the protein not be digested properly, but the, most of the minerals, there's some exceptions, but most of the minerals won't come out and get into an absorbable form as they should. And oddly enough, uh, the same cells that are supposed to make the acid and pepsin are also supposed to make a factor that gloms onto vitamin B12 so it can be absorbed. And without that, that can't get in. And if we take a look at the number of nutrients that might or might not be absorbed properly if our stomachs are low on stomach acid, why, we come up with between 18 and 24 different nutrients depending on elements. And hey, there's only 55 essential ones. So if we're low in up to that many, and I didn't say everybody's low in all if they've got low, low stomach acid, but it's usually a uh, good, good section of them. Anyway, if we're low on that many, we're not going to stay as healthy as we could. Now, that's the reason it's so important. And hey, why did creation and nature make our stomachs capable of putting out such strong acid that if we were to put our fingers in there and could stand the pain for an hour, why, we would pull out nothing but bone. Uh, that's how strong that acid and pepsin are. Why would nature do that? It's got to have a purpose. Well, you just heard about the purpose. But the other thing is that we have been absolutely and totally bamboozled by patent medicine companies. And yes, folks, patent medicine companies do exist. They're not out of the 19th century. Just think about it. When a doctor writes a prescription, is there a patent on the molecule that the prescription is mm -hmm. for? Of course there is, unless the patent ran out. So it's either patented or formally patented. That's the law. You cannot patent something that's found in nature. And so it's not natural. And what you're getting is an unnatural molecule that blocks your stomach acid or, or um, buffers the stomach acid. And while it may make the pain go away, oh, my goodness, it interferes with digestion even worse. There are a lot of studies showing that people who use those things continuously are more likely to get pneumonia or osteoporosis or even in some cases early dementia because all those nutrients aren't getting in. So how, why did we get bamboozled that way? Well, gee, if someone had told us that heartburn usually has more to do with low acidity than too much acidity, could anybody make any money on having us take hydrochloric acid pills? Or liquid? Mm. No, stuff's not patentable. So they couldn't. They had to make up something with block it. Now, I'm not just talking in the air. There's a wonderful study from the Mayo Clinic, 1932, a Dr. Van Zandt. She reported on some 3,400 folks, I think that was the number, um, at various times of life between 20s all the way to 70s. And what they'd done was the stomach acid test of the day. We don't have to do that anymore. There's a much more high-tech test. But the day was uh, you check the stomach directly for acidity. Uh, you know, pump the stomach out, that kind of stuff. And what she found was that there was increasing amount, uh, increasing number, I should say, increasing percentage of folks at every decade of life had lower and lower and lower stomach acid. And by the time we all get to be 60, according to Dr. Van Zandt, Approximately 50% of us 
don't have optimal stomach acid secretion. Um, so now, mm. if that's the case, and it's been proven with 3,400 people and increases with time, which oddly enough, digestive disorders do, don't they? Oh yeah, that's just grandpa it's complaining about his stomach. He didn't have that when he was a young man. Um, if that's the case, then why are we taking acid to block the stuff entirely? Well, that goes back to why do we get heartburn when our stomach acid is low? Uh, you'd think the acid would be high. And occasionally it is, by the way. That's why it's worthwhile to do a stomach acid test and find out if you got heartburn. Do you have high acid, which is low odds, or do you have low acid, which is high odds? Um, but anyway, you'd think that it would be the high acid causing, us, causing heartburn, but no. Our stomach has an inlet valve, and in techie terms, it's called the gastroesophageal sphincter, but it's just where the esophagus meets the stomach, and when the stomach, when the food pops into the stomach, that valve's supposed to close. It opens to let the food through, and through, and that's supposed to close. Why? Because after the food comes through, here comes the hydrochloric acid, and the valve stayed open. The acid would go up the esophagus, wouldn't it? Uh huh. And you'd mm. heartburn. So anyway, this, you know, we all have noticed that any 16-year-old guy, particularly, can eat half the contents of the refrigerator. And does he get heartburn? No. Uh-uh. Mm. Everything's working like it should, and that valve is shutting, and it's keeping all the stuff down in the stomach till it's digested. And then the valve on the outlet side, just to complete the picture, it's acid-sensitive. And when the acid gets concentrated enough, it just opens up, and out the food goes out of the stomach, and there we are. Okay. But it takes a certain amount of acid to get that top valve to close. And if that top valve doesn't detect enough acid, it's going to stay open. And then even if we have a little bit of acid in our tummies, it's going to come back through that opening and burn us. So when we get heartburn, that does not, not, not mean, unless it's proven with a test, that you got too much stomach acid. And when you take the test, you usually find you got too little. Uh, unfortunately... There's no money in selling people hydrochloric acid and pepsin. You can get pepsin is the enzyme that comes with hydrochloric acid. You can get it out of any health food store. But the sales of acid blocking medications, oh, last I looked, were over two billion dollars a year. So you can see why well, you've been bamboozled for all that time about what really is the case with heartburn. Occasionally, too much acid. More often, too little acid. Now, I'll shut up in a second, but besides just the passage of time and getting older and getting more gray hair and not being able to run so fast and needing glasses and the stomach not working so well, I'm sorry, folks, but even if we really, really take good care of ourselves, that sometimes happens with time anyway. Not as much if we take care of ourselves, but besides just getting older, there are a number of things that will do this to us. For example, allergy. When we eat stuff we're allergic to, uh-uh. Sometimes stomach just doesn't like that, and the result is heartburn. And sometimes it doesn't have to be allergies. It can be common things such as, oh, coffee gets some people, and certain types of alcohol get other people. Um, it can be food sensitivity, which is an allergy. It can be allergy that's doing it to us. It can be the passage of time. And then there's this little bacteria, which according to the World, World Health Organization, uh, is found in one, three, one in three people around the world, and the reason for that is it's in drinking water a lot. Well, it's not that, not as common as one in three in the United States, 
but we sure do find it in people who have heartburn. And so we test for it. If we find out the stomach acid is low, that little bacteria goes by the name of Helicobacter pylori. No, I didn't make the name up. Somebody else did, but Helicobacter pylori. Helico, referring to a helix, is like a corkscrew, and that enables it to corkscrew down underneath the mucus layer that covers the stomach and get right into those stomach lining cells where it says, oh, goody, lunch, and it continues to work on them, and over time it destroys them. Uh, initially, the infection, one doesn't even notice, but over time it can eat away and eat away at the stomach. And you know, that little bugger not only has been proven to cause stomach ulcers if it drills away in one place too much, but it also leads to stomach cancer sometimes. But on its way to doing that, it reduces the acidity in the stomach. Hey, they even taught us in medical school that, oh, gee, if they've got stomach cancer, then before they got that cancer, they always had zero stomach acid, which is when that little Mm. bacteria is eaten away at the lining of the stomach so badly uh, that it just can't make acid at all. So anyway, there's all stages all, all sorts of things that can lead to low stomach acid. And before we go out there and take, oh, whatever color the pill is, purple, blue, blue green, uh, pill of the month, uh, or even the Tums, we don't want to be taking anything except, oh, i got to take it out for the pain. Yeah, right, we got to get rid of the pain right now. I understand that. But we don't want to be doing it over any long period of time because all we're doing is ratcheting down on our digestive capability and literally giving ourselves uh-huh, partial malnutrition, and who needs that? Wow. So, is there a function to as we get older that our is it a, a function of getting older that our digestive systems produce less hydrochloric acid, or is it the accumulation of stress, bad diet, and allergens that creates that? Or is that, that, I, that and when we get older, there's an accumulation of all of those things, and that leads us to having chronic lower di- HCL, stomach acid? I'm more inclined toward you know? accumulation of everything, because I've also seen severely stressed 17-year-olds with no stomach acid. And then, uh, when the stress goes away, they slowly recover. Uh, however, there's some stomachs that get so badly damaged by an allergen that they never do recover. So it sort of varies, but I'd say for most people it's that accumulation. And maybe this little mm-hmm. helicobacter, too. I've run into families where every member of the family had Helicobacter. Wow. And that can be gotten through drinking water? Yes, sir. Or is sir. that some, someplace else? Oh, directly from drinking water. Okay. Directly from drinking water, and I don't know if it passes from person to person, but I'm guessing now that it can. How come I'm guessing? Because there's a condition known as nasal polyps, uh, where people have these little polyps growing in their nose, and nobody knew what it was until some researchers, oddly enough, over in Poland, and they've repeated it several times, and so so have some other researchers, so I believe it, they found that those little polyps in the nose are caused by helicobacter, and nobody drinks with their nose. So Japanese researchers have found helicobacter in coronary artery plaque, so that little bugger gets around. And was it that? And was helic, has helicobacter always been around, or did it did it sort of like kind of appear on the scene and start happening? Do you know that part? No, as far as anyone knows, it's been around. Ulcers have been reported for hundreds of years, and they were probably even though the stomachs don't last after we die, the only the bones do. They probably, from the description of symptoms, came from helicobacter. Yeah, it's been around a long, long time. Wow. 
But you see, it was only proven that it caused ulcers in the 1980s by one brave Australian researcher who had his stomach looked at very thoroughly, and then he bravely swallowed water infested with Helicobacter and gave himself a stomach ulcer, and that sort of proved it to everybody. Um, but before that, everybody was saying that ulcers are caused by stress, too. They're not. They're caused by Helicobacter. Wow. And in back to our drinking water, can we do something? Do we? Does that mean we want to be drinking distilled water? Uh, not distilled water, but reverse osmosis or highly filtered? Or is there something we want to do in terms of prophylactic prevention? Places, yeah. Oh, in most places in in these United States, um, there is no helicobacter in the water. Most people mm-hmm. pick it up by traveling uh, in just in overseas areas and so-called third world countries. Although I'm starting to wonder about whether we've got a first world one here anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I didn't. I I knew about helico, but I didn't know that correlation, especially the nasal polyps. I have to right after the show, you know, call a couple people and say, you know, those nasal polyps. You want to have this checked because I didn't know the, cor- yeah. the relationship of polyps. Yeah, what they did was they took out the polyps and checked for bacterial DNA, and darn if they didn't find the DNA of Helicobacter right in them. And that kind of explains why you can have them taken out and they come right back again, because you cannot surgically remove the bacteria, can you? Yeah, it's in there. And what is the treatment for Helico? Well, if it's in the tummy, um, there are so-called triple antibiotics that will get rid of it, three different antibiotics taken at once. I don't subscribe to that much unless it's a last resort because it also really messes with one's other normal intestinal bacteria. And as everybody knows by now, we've all heard the word probiotics. Uh, We don't want to Mm -hmm. be messing with the intestinal bacteria because that can lead to its own problems. So there's some other things that will get rid of it. Um, Now, how well they get rid of them is less than the triple antibiotics, so people usually have to combine several things. Um, But it turns out that mastic, which is a gum resin, it's actually used in dentistry, but there was an island in Greece called Kos, C-O-S, and when, I'm not sure who it was, but some physicians of Arab descent living in London decided to read some old Arab medical texts they found that people were referred from all over the Middle East to the island of Kos if they had stomach trouble. And so these researchers decided to go to the island there and see what it was that might be helping. And they got lucky and were able to track it down to the fact that this mastic, which came from the tree, some of the trees there, is a tree resin and was used widely in the cooking, actually kills helicobacter. And it's in all the cooking there, or at least most of the cooking. So they were able to show that mastic kills Helicobacter. There's other research showing that rhubarb concentrate kills Helicobacter. There's more research showing that vitamin C kills Helicobacter. And guess what? That stuff that's been on the market forever, bismuth and Pepto-Bismol. And no, I'm not promoting Pepto-Bismols, but bismuth kills Helicobacter, too. Wow, Pepto-Bismol, really? I'm not, like that. I'm not promoting Pepto-Bismol either, but I'm, I'm shocked. Wow. Yeah, and that's been on the market forever for, guess what, digestive complaints, huh? Wow. And do, do we think that it's even possible that way back when Pepto-Bismol was invented, I, I have no idea when it was, but it seems like it was, you know, in that Coca-Cola sort of time zone, 
that they hadn't even thought about that? Oh, wow. Uh, okay. 1918 is when the uh, name was put on it. It previously was Dr. So-and-so's business compound. And I don't think anybody knew about the helicobacter at that time. They just knew that business compounds, This uh, one or more doctors had come up with the observation that compounds with business would relieve digestive complaints. And so that's why they named it the way they did. Uh, but it's only been since then that it's been found that, what do you know, business, which is an essential element, by the way, uh, business actually kills helicobacter. Now, none of these natural things kill, helibac- kill helicobacter as efficiently as do the triple antibiotics, but that's kind of saying like, uh, uh, gee, um, that campfire isn't as good as a forest fire. And excuse me, but we don't necessarily want a forest fire to start with. Uh, we want to try to put it out with something gentler that doesn't mess with the other intestinal bacteria so much. And also, does uh, does having healthy gut, like if you do support it with not only having obviously good uh, stomach acid levels, but also things that are good for the stomach in terms of how your diet is and reduce that. So you're reducing the load or the stress on the digestive system and then good probiotics and then maybe one of these is an adjunct, either the mastic or the rhubarb concentrate or the vitamin C. Can that all take it in the right direction to knock out the helium? Well, remember the shape of that little bacteria, fella? It's a corkscrew. And it can corkscrew right through the there's, there's literally a mucus layer that overlies the stomach lining, and it can corkscrew its way right through there. Uh, unfortunately, other bacteria, such as probiotics, cannot. Um, they can't get through that mucus layer. So this little corkscrew bacteria corkscrews its way through, makes, up, makes a happy home hiding under the mucus and right snuggling up against the actual lining of the stomach. It's hard to get at. That's why... All the natural treatments have to be taken on an empty stomach and left in the stomach for a little bit to hope they seep through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that has a little to do with what you said, but not as much as it would with other circumstances just because of the unique shape of this bacteria and how it works. Right. Yeah, the threading into the tissue makes it really tricky. It's really in there. It's not kidding around. I'm here. Nope. Okay. And what is the uh, in the new uh, version of uh, the new for people who are looking for the uh, your stomach book, the book I have, which was called Why Stomach Acid is Good for You. I know that there's a new issue of that called Your Stomach, What is Really Making You Miserable and What to Do About It. And uh-huh. are there new? You've added more research into that. I'm suspecting. Actually, uh, I was not a, not aware of a book by that title. <laughs> do they have oh. maybe they, maybe the Maybe the publisher just changed the name. Well, I think it's possible they would change the name because I always, when any time I tried to suggest to somebody that they read why stomach acid is good for you, they always were like, "Oh, it sounds scary, acid." Ooh. So maybe they just reissued it with a new title. All right, we'll just move yeah, they along. Have the right to do that. But they <laughs> okay, haven't asked right. for any revisions, and yet it okay. is still selling well enough that they keep it in print. So what I'm thinking is, um, the only updates that I would put in and were I to put any in uh, would be the increasing pile of research showing that acid-blocking patent medicines are really bad for the health in the long run. And there is absolutely nothing that contradicts that statement. Every time somebody does a long-term study on the consequences of taking acid blockers, uh, oh, here's another bad effect. 
So we, yes, uh, I would put in another pile of research, but about all the causes and what to do about them, no, there's nothing particularly new there. <laughs> Not laughing at you. I'm laughing at the like. No, that really, it's the same old, you know, bad diet, bad, you know, and here we are. We've got, you know, low stomach acid. Well, that's that's great. Now, okay, so now I want to switch gears slightly and talk to you about HRT or hormone replacement therapy. And now we're talking about your book, Stay Young and Sexy with Bioidentical Hormones. And I want to jump right in to your delivery system so they get the shock out of the way and then you can talk about all the benefits because I think <laughs> hormone replacement therapy is so positive. But I know that you, and this is a really great phrase. I think this is a really, uh, I saw this in writing or heard you say this someplace about you follow nature's lead or what I would call nature's path about how you deliver hormone replacement therapy. Oh, you betcha. Can I talk about that? Sure. And just before I do, um, I've got to give credit to Dr. Lane Leonard. He's a Ph.D. doctor, a science writer, who is the co-author on the stomach acid book and on the hormone book uh, with me. And I really appreciate uh, his capabilities in research and writing, too. Um, he's a Ph.D. doctor. I happen to be an M.D. doctor. But, hey, we can get along. And we did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, about that delivery system. Well, let's see. Uh, not too many years ago, and oddly enough, still being done some places, people were told if they were going to replace hormones, well, here's this pill, swallow it. Okay, where does that pill go? Uh, well, uh, duh, it goes down to the stomach, and then it goes to the intestines, and what do you mean, where's it go? Well, keep going, please. It, the intestines take it up. Yeah, where do the intestines take it to? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, in medical school, they tell us that all the blood and lymph drainage from the intestines, I'm sorry, all the blood drainage, uh, anyway, it all goes to the liver. Okay. Now, let's stop there for a moment and go back to where hormones usually come from and where they go to. Let's say we happen to be a lady. Uh, two ovaries, just like guys have two testicles, and the hormones go from the ovaries into the blood that drains the ovaries, the veins. And where does that blood go? Why, it works its way to the center of the body to this big blood vessel that goes up to the heart called the vena cava. I have to say that to, you know, prove I went to school, I guess. Uh, that's what it's <laughs> called. And it goes up to the heart. And the heart, the heart, not the liver? Yes, the heart, not the liver. And the heart delivers that hormone with every pump of the heart to every cell in the body first. And that is just so important. It gets to every cell in the body first. And then a little bit goes by the liver every time. comes back from the cells, and on its way back, um, it doesn't go direct to the liver, it goes to the heart. And then the heart puts a little bit of it over to the liver. Got to keep the liver alive too, don't we? And it's got some of those hormones in it, but basically the liver only gets a small fraction uh, with each pump, heart, uh, pump of the heart of the hormone. Now when we swallow it, the liver gets 100%. Bang! Now why does that make a difference? Well, gee, the liver is not built to handle all that hormone. So what does it do? It says, oh, what's my job? Oh, yes, there's a hormone. I'm supposed to get rid of it. There's a hormone. I'm supposed to get rid of it. There's a hormone. I'm supposed to get rid of it. So when we have people swallowing their hormones, a whole bunch of it lands in the urine, and 
that didn't do us that much good, did it? It might have done the uh, bacteria in the sewer system a little good, but it didn't do us that much good. Uh, on top of that, estrogen is particularly dangerous. When that pile of estrogen runs into the liver, it sets up in some women, not all, a mild inflammation, and it's known even in regular conventional medicine that that can lead to clots and strokes and heart attacks, estrogen, if we swallow it. Um, and on the other hand, if the estrogen is rubbed in, and there's a preferred area to rub it in too, it's called the mucous membrane, well, again, it's not coming from the ovaries, but it behaves as if it were, namely it goes to the blood vessels, to the heart, to every cell in the body, and so forth. And that has been proven not to cause an inflamed liver and not to raise the risk of heart attack and stroke for ladies. Now, for guys, if they swallow testosterone, um, it too goes to the liver. Very fortunately for guys, I guess we're lucky, it doesn't lead to as many heart attacks and strokes and stuff, but it's still lots of it piles into the urine, and it's not going to do that good guy so much good being in his urine, is it? Uh uh-uh. So these hormones need to follow the path that nature intended them to, to get them to every cell in the body before a little bit is wasted away by the liver. Um, there's one more hormone I'll mention, which is just classic for this. The stuff's called DHEA, and it's from the adrenals, and it, too, reaches a peak in our youth. In fact, when we're more youthful than menopause, it peaks at about age 30 in both genders. And then it gradually comes down, or sometimes it comes down rapidly, but it varies from person to person. And by the time we're all 60 to 70, we got hardly any DHEA compared to what we did when we were 30. And DHEA is a major support for the immune system. It's the most abundant of all the natural steroids. It's got to be doing a lot of things, and it is. And there's little pills of DHEA in every natural food store. Well, you know, I can always tell when a guy is taking DHEA by mouth because we'll do a urine test and, look, it's all full of estrone, which is a certain type of estrogen. Uh, Excuse me, Mr. Jones, would you happen to be taking DHEA? Uh, Yeah, how'd you know that? Uh, Well, there's all this estrone in your urine, and that's what the liver does with DHEA. Isn't that... Estrone, that's not good for me, is it? Uh, well, no, it's a, it's a so-called female hormone, and us guys have a little bit of that, too, but not as much as you showed. It's a good thing it's in your urine, and not so much of it is in you. That's it. I'm just using that to illustrate some of the weird things that happen when we swallow these hormones by mouth. There is one exception to that, and that is progesterone for ladies. It's been shown that... Indeed, if you're rubbing the progesterone, it takes the same path, goes to every cell in the body, does what progesterone's supposed to do, and that's what we want. But it's additionally been shown that when progesterone hits the liver, woo liver can't take it all, and so it turns it into large quantities of, guess what, a tranquilizer hormone, and it does mm. no harm, and that's very important to know. And woman after woman, and it's not every woman, it's women particularly who are having sleep problems around menopause will say, oh, if I swallow progesterone, I can sleep so much better. If I rub it in, it helps some, but not as much. So that's true. And since it's been thoroughly proven that that particular metabolite made in the liver doesn't hurt anything, and it's a tranquilizing hormone, and it helps ladies to sleep, fine. 
that one will make an exception and say, well, take part of your progesterone by rubbing it in because every single cell in your body needs some of it and take the rest of it by swallowing it so you can get to sleep. Other than that, they all should be rubbed in. Amazing. Tell us more about why hormone replacement therapy. I mean, besides the obvious, we hear a lot about perimenopausal or menopausal women and, and you know, that kind of hormone issues. We don't hear a lot about men and andropause and hormone replacement therapy for men. So if I'm, I might have you, if you can, go that direction, talking about men and the benefits men receive from hormone replacement. Okay, well, they just happen to be parallel to the ones for ladies, in most respects anyway. But before we do that, as you say, uh, let me finish off just on the so-called delivery system, which just means how does the hormone get into the body. And that is that even though it's supposed to be rubbed in, where it's rubbed in is important too. Now, uh, I seem to have been the first to put together a comprehensive bioidentical pattern of bioidentical hormones for therapy in the early 1980s, but that's only the first here in these United States. There's uh, documentation, just really good documentation, that hormone replacement therapy was actually done first in China in the 11th century. I'm not kidding you. And I could refer you to the book and wow. read the 35 pages about it too. Uh, so they were way ahead of us. But that kind of tapered out for reasons nobody understands in the 19th century. And so here in North America, um, in the early 1980s, I just simply because I was asked to by somebody I was working with, uh, put together a pattern of comprehensive hormones. What I mean by that is, hey, if one needs estrogen, one frequently needs a little thyroid, and one might need some melatonin, and perhaps adrenal hormones. And for guys, oh, every woman will say us guys are less complicated. We're just kind of straight ahead. Uh, we definitely know about our testosterone, but we don't know that we might need some DHEA. It, it uh, tapers off with time too, and thyroid, and so on. Uh, but anyway, when I was putting that together, we initially had people rub it into the skin, and compounding pharmacists would make up a so-called carrier base that would carry it into the skin. And that worked fine. But I learned in just a couple, three years that it wasn't working so good anymore and the same people it was working for before. And they'd swear I'm using the same amount and I'm very I'm moving it from place to place on the skin and yet I'm not feeling so good, Doc. And so I don't mean they were feeling bad, they just weren't feeling as good as they were when they started. Uh, and it would take anywhere from a few months to a few years for that to happen. So a couple of folks ran some tests, and we found out that with the very same dose they had tested uh, at a certain level when they first started using it, well, a few years later, that very same dose, their test was coming back at three-quarters that level or five-eighths that level, some fraction. So that went on long enough, and we increased the doses, and yeah, it worked better for a while, and then it started tapering off again. And I don't know where I got the uh, uh, bright idea, one of those things that uh, just occurred. Uh, I asked one of the ladies to rub it into what's called a mucous membrane. Now, mucous membrane is like lip. We can all feel the lip, and it feels different than the outside of the cheek, doesn't it? Sure. And if you look at it, it looks more red You can uh, without lipstick, too. Uh, it looks more red. You can see the underlying tissue. There's no fat cells on top. Okay. And the skin, there's always some fat and, and fibrous tissue skin underneath. And you can't see the red underneath like you can with lip. 
Okay, well, mucous membrane is like lip, but nobody's going to rub it into their lips. But I thought mucous membranes might absorb better. So anyway, this lady did a real careful test, like an engineer. First she rubs it into the skin, does a test, sees where she's at, waits a few days, rubs it into the mucous membrane. Where's that? Well, for ladies, it's the vaginal area or inside the inner labia. Um, and by the way, if one works with the appropriate compounding pharmacist, the dose can be made up in such a small volume that it does not make any mess on one's underpants. That's kind of important. Um, if we're working with a pharmacist that puts it in a big glob, it is going to take a mess. Okay, so she rubbed it into the mucous membrane area, and she did another test, and doggone, it was right back up to where it was the first time she ran a test after her first treatment where she used skin. So I started asking other people to do that, people who had had to increase their dose, increase the dose because it wasn't working so well, and they'd switch to mucous membrane, and bingo, they could go back to the original dose, and it would work again. Um, now, for guys, us guys have a very limited amount of mucous membrane in the pelvic area. Um, hmm, where is it? Well, if we were three years old with a mirror and bent over, we could see that around the anal area there is about a half an inch to an inch where, oh, yeah, you can see kind of like lip skin there. Now, I know this is not a really good analogy, but what can I tell you? Uh, there's mucous membrane outside, not inside, outside, for a stretch of about half an inch, three-quarters of an inch. It's also the place where we would grow hemorrhoids if we're growing to. So with guys, I'm sorry, guys. Um, you could try rubbing into the skin, but if it quits working, you have to move it. So you may as well move it there to start with. And what do you know? It works for guys, and guys don't have to use a big glob either, and it doesn't get on their underpants. And that keeps on working, and it keeps on working well. Now, there's two exceptions to that. They're minor, but some people develop an incompatibility with the carrier base. No kidding. And we have to switch hmm. the carrier base, and then it gets in better. And other people, and this is unusual, but other people, they actually become incompatible with the hormone itself, and there all we can do is desensitize them. But... Uh, those are kind of technicalities that you only need if you're uh, working with this with lots of people. Uh, the main thing for most folks is if it's rubbed into a mucous membrane, it's reliably absorbed for as long as you want to use it. Okay, getting on to then hormones. Uh, let's say more for men. Uh, you pretty obviously don't live in the Seattle area where radio has commercials for Revive Testosterone Clinic and Forever Male Clinic and all that kind of clinic. Uh, they're really hot and heavy up here on the on the radio. Um, but uh, there is a lot more interest by guys. And the reason for that is not just one's sex life. Now, come on, guys. Anybody who's listening to a guy, we know that's important. And it's important to ladies, too. Uh, guys are just, uh, by nature, a little more, um, what shall I say, emphatic about it. Um, okay. It's important for that. But... The big deal, and this is for both men and women, both, is it dramatically lowers the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Dramatically. Now, hmm. in the conventional circles, they're still saying they're, they're still proving that. And more and more articles are coming out that are proving that. One very recently, oh, yeah, that part of a woman's brain deteriorates less rapidly if she's on hormones than if she isn't. Oh, okay. And that's only a year ago. But the basic science was done back around the turn of the last century, and I don't mean 1800 to 1900, I mean the 1900s to 2000s, um, by some scientists from Rockefeller University who took male neurons and female neurons, 
Oh, where'd they get them? Well, from people who died of non-neurologic causes. In other, in other words, there was nothing the matter with their brains. They didn't have Alzheimer's. Maybe they're in a traffic accident. That's maybe. But they died of something else other than brain problems. And they got those neurons and put them in culture dishes and kept them alive. And one can do that with cells for quite a long time. And what they did was to observe the accumulation of the bad stuff that accumulates in Alzheimer's disease. Now, it turns out the bad stuff that accumulates in Alzheimer's disease is basically garbage that's made by cells. You know, all cells bring in nutrients and out supposed to come garbage, and in comes nutrients, out supposed to come garbage, build up, break down, build up, break down every day. Um, however, some of that garbage, which happens to be called beta amyloid and tau protein and neurofibrillary tangle, uh, was being built up at a certain rate in the male neurons and a certain rate in the female neurons, which is about the same. And then they decided to do something. Now, I forgot to mention that they had put everything into the fluid surrounding these cells except for hormones. They put all the nutrients in they needed, no more, no less. But they did not add any hormone, and they watched the accumulation of these different waste materials, basically. All right. Then, into the culture with the male neurons, they put in what they called a physiologic dose of testosterone. And the same with the female neurons. I don't mean the same. What was the same was the physiologic dose of estrogen. Now, the reason I'm underlining vocally estrogen, uh, physiologic, those words, is that means that's the amount that's supposed to be there. That's what happens in nature. It's not a big amount. It's just a little teeny amount that's usually there. Okay. And what they observed was just amazing. The accumulation of intracellular garbage was cut down by 80% or so. And all wow. these things that are found to accumulate in Alzheimer's were dramatically decreased. Now, what the estrogen and testosterone were finally found to do was not to block the formation, but instead to expedite the getting rid of. Hmm. It was as if. This is an as if, okay? A, a, an, an example. Um, it was as if the janitorial crew that's supposed to get rid of this garbage in each cell had not been working properly, and the hormones were found to activate an enzyme that is, in a manner of speaking, the head of the janitorial crew, the supervisor of the janitorial crew. And now the supervisor's here, and everybody works hard and sweet at sweeps out the garbage. And so this is one case, Richard, where garbage in, garbage out is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because we, we got rid of all that garbage, and if we get rid of it, then, of course, it doesn't accumulate, does it? We just throw it out. It's like you've seen those things on TV of people who accumulate so much in their houses they can't move around. Well, they just don't throw anything out, and the cells weren't throwing out this garbage. Now, once they had that down to a cellular level, and that was the early 2000s, you absolutely can predict that this stuff is going to prevent Alzheimer's. Now, when a guy comes on into the office, and by the way, I don't mean 100%, but it dramatically cuts the risk. When the guy comes into the office and he says, oh, Doc, um, you know, libido's not there, sex life's not so good, I need my testosterone, and nobody ever says it just like that, but that's the summary, um, I'll say, well, yeah, but you know there's a more important, important reason for testosterone than that, and usually I'll just get a, oh, what could that be? And I'll say, well, you know, without your testosterone being at a good, good uh, level, you've got a greater risk of Alzheimer's. And what's the good of having a sex life if you can't remember who she was and what you did? <laughs> wow. 
Yeah. So Alzheimer's is the biggie. We've been told by um, various authorities, if you can call them that, that if a person lives to be 65 and they're perfectly healthy, they still got, I'm not kidding you, Richard, this is government statistics, if we can believe them, and I'm more more skeptical about those every day this Obama tax thing goes by. Um, But anyway, the government statistics say, um, oh, let's see, if you're 65 and you're healthy, you got a 45% chance of having Alzheimer's when you're 85. Oh, my God, 45%? Wow. That's ridiculous. Shows that, indeed, testosterone cuts the risk of cardiovascular disease for guys. Hey, that's in the book by the Harvard professor, Abraham Morgan Taylor, um, who very fortunately has caused our local urologist to shut up about how dangerous testosterone is because he's a professor from Harvard. Okay, he's on our side for a change. All right, so it cuts the risk of, of atherosclerotic disease. It cuts the risk of osteoporosis. Now, about this point, somebody puts up their hand and says, um, um, I thought you were talking about following nature. Well, yeah. Isn't it natural for hormones to decline? What are you doing replacing them? And my answer to that is, uh, gee, when Dr. Alzheimer's described Alzheimer's disease, it was so weird that he had to put his name on it and describe it to a whole lot of people before they believe him. And even that, then, in the 19th century, there was very little of it. And there was no epidemic of cardiovascular disease in the 18th century. That didn't get started till the early 1900s. And the only people who have had osteoporosis to any degree, huh, well, Eskimo people did, just because of the skewed diet, um, very, very far north and very few fruits and vegetables. But um, osteoporosis was also rare. It did happen, but it was rare. And now we've got cardiovascular disease, which fortunately is settling down somewhat, but it's all over the place still. We've got this 45% risk of Alzheimer's when we're 65. Oy, oy, oy. So it's a cost-benefit thing. Uh, do we want to run that risk or we don't want to do something to prevent it? Which, by the way, can be done safely if the doctor who's working with you on bioidentical hormones actually knows what he or she is doing. Ah, which these recent researches did not. I couldn't believe what they did in those uh, research papers. But that's why we should be thinking about it. It's a natural response to an unnatural environment. There is so much pollution and pesticides and herbicides and heavy metal, uh, lead from the gasoline when uh, many of us were growing up, uh, cadmium, mercury, uh, the stuff's blown around the penguin national, uh, around the planet. Uh, National Geographic tells us that there is lead and cadmium in penguin fat. And excuse me, there's no lead mines in Antarctica. It's just blowing around the planet. And just as a another uh, trivial pursuit fact here, men in the 1950s did not have their testosterone decline noticeably until they were over 60 years of age. These days, we're seeing notable declines in testosterone in guys in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And wow. that was there from the 1960s. So the testosterone... Did you ever hear about the... I believe it was in the National Geographic, the alligators in the Everglades? Yes. Who quit having yep. babies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because all that environmental pollution was getting into them, and the male alligators... 
they were so small they couldn't get the lady alligators pregnant, and they found it all due to the pollution in the area. Yeah, there, so was, anyway. there were some spooky studies also done, you know, in the Everglades with frogs that were having similar issues because they have they are in water, they're in the stuff that's highly polluted all the time, and they're growing like extra limbs yeah. and not able to be produced, and their hormones are sideways, and yeah, afraid so. Well, just for fun, did you know that was all due to an act of Congress, Richard? Oh boy, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh, man. Turns out that the sugarcane fields were not, not that close to the Everglades prior to 1970. And in 1970, Congress passed the Sugar Tariff Act. You can look it up online, Sugar Tariff Act of 1970. What that did was raise the price of imported sugars to doggone high and make it so profitable for the people in the Everglades to expand their, their sugarcane fields that they did, and they bought up all that territory, and they went right up against the Everglades, and that's when the major pollution started. Act of Congress. <sighs> Our tax dollars at work. There you go. Amazing. <laughs> wow. That could careen us off into a whole conversation, but I won't do it. Um, I oh, I know. That's why, that's why I shortened that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Actually, I'd heard you talk about that Sugar Tariff Act, and I think that's such a powerful thing when we went from sugar to the dreaded fructose, that's in my opinion, the dreaded fructose, you know, I mean, it's like that's that's such a downhill bad slope of badness. I know you can say that much more yep. articulately, but I mean, that's really like bad, bad, bad. I guess you have, really? to, I guess you have to talk about that a little, so there we are. Things were bad enough with just all the refined sugar, sugar cane in things. Uh, Dr. John Edkin proved that to us. He was from the U.K. But uh, when it got replaced by fructose because sucrose got so expensive because of the Sugar Tariff Act, fructose is much worse than sucrose ever thought of being. And it just, among other things, exploded the um, progression of diabetes in our country. <sighs> I I have no place to go. It just causes my you know hair to go out straight and stuff to shoot out my ears. It's just uh, bad. So actually, we can say that part of that explosion in diabetes is due to the sugar tariff too. But we better get back to hormones and uh, let me go over <laughs> to the ladies' side of things for just a moment. Um, Please. One of the things that we're told is that oh my God, hormones might cause cancer. Well, think about that, folks. Come on. Uh, what age are we at when we have a higher risk of cancer? That is, particularly estrogen-related cancer, breast cancer, postmenopause or premenopause? Probably postmenopause. Yeah. And what age are we at when we get prostate cancer? 23, when our testosterone is the highest? No, it's more like in our 50s, 60s, and 70s, isn't it? Even so, when we replace hormones, we don't look to replace them with the average 23-year-old's levels. No, we don't. We look to replace them with, hey, have you ever heard of the Jack Benny theory of medicine? No, I can't wait. I really am going somewhere here. This is for real. Yeah, there's this sketch of Jack Benny. He's seeing the doctor and has all these complaints. And the doctor leans over, pats him on the back and says, Mr. Benny, what do you expect at your age? And Mr. Benny folds his arm in front of him, in front of him and adopts his favorite indignant stare and says, But, doctor, I'm only 39. <laughs> well, yeah. so what we do is we shoot for levels that are in a person's 30s. You know, 
we don't want an 18-year-old level where perhaps the guy's looking at every girl. Um, and maybe they are in their 30s, too, but it settles down somewhat for most guys. And yet, the levels that are in a person's 30s, whether male or female, are um, not harmful to that 30-year-old. Yes, the occasional woman gets breast cancer in her 30s, but that's the point of following up on hormone replacement for both ladies and men with tests which tell you how the hormones are metabolizing. Are they being made into anti-carcinogens or pro-carcinogens? And for anybody who wants to know what our bodies are doing making pro-carcinogens, and isn't it all just environmental pollution? Uh, no, it's not. Nature has this balance. There's balance in many, many things in nature, and one of them is that the most potent estrogen there is, the one that causes more breast development and hip development for ladies, and the most important test, the most potent testosterone there is, something called DHT, uh, both of those are also procarcinogenic. But when physiology, biochemistry, whatever you want to call it, is functioning properly, those are more than offset by the anti-carcinogens. There are estrogens that are firmly anti-carcinogenic. And clear back in the 1960s, uh, Dr. Henry Lemon published in the American Journal of the American Medical Association, no less, that after a person had surgery for breast cancer, because in those days they were just starting to do chemo and radiation and all that stuff, uh, that really doesn't do that much good, darn it. Um, anyway, um, the women who had the highest levels of a certain estrogen were, least, were, were most likely to be long-term survivors survivors, and the women who had the least levels of that particular estrogen were most likely to be dead within a short period of time. Now, that was an observational, but since then, it's been sorted out how that works. turns out that, as far as we know right now, there are two different alpha, uh, estrogen receptors. They happen to be called alpha and beta, just, I guess, to be uh, give them a name. Not very original, though. And the beta receptor is one that works against cancers. And the alpha receptor is the one that is more pro-carcinogenic. And the certain estrogen that is anti-carcinogenic is the one that hits into the anti-carcinogenic receptor only and fights against abnormal differentiation of cells, whereas other estrogens hit into the pro-carcinogenic receptor. So anyway, we got more of the anti-carcinogen than the pro-carcinogen. It really cuts our risk of cancer. Now, it doesn't say we won't get it at all because some little gluten molecule could get in there and cause, cause you to have cancer. But insofar as the estrogens themselves, um, the anti-carcinogenic one cuts the risk. There's another ratio between two other good and bad estrogens that needs to be looked at. And for guys, well, you wouldn't think... You, it would be silly to think that uh, nature would leave this mechanism out of guise, and it's entirely true. There are anti- and pro-carcinogenic testosterones, and the anti-carcinogenic testosterone is sufficiently potent that in experiment, experimental animal tests, experimental animals with prostate cancer have had their prostate cancer regress by being given only the anti-carcinogenic testosterone. Huh. Wasn't nature smart? So we can do tests for the pro- and anti-carcinogenic metabolites uh, for both men and women. And then men have one other hazard that they have to look out for. And here, I'm going to talk about this hazard. 
And I'm also going to talk about a big, bad flaw in these studies that said, oh, testosterone is bad for older guys. And that is, in both sexes, nature is very conservative. And both sexes will take, to start with, of all things, cholesterol, and turn it into pregnenolone, which will turn into progesterone, and further down the track is testosterone, and then testosterone's turned into estrogen, and that's in both genders, but obviously nature has us do more of certain ones in women and more of certain other ones in men. Okay, but guys have some estrogen too, and guys take their testosterone and turn a little bit of it into estrogen. And women take most of their testosterone and turn it into estrogen. And that's the way nature is. So ladies have more estrogen, us guys have more testosterone. We're quite slow to metabolize into estrogen. Ask any lady, she'll tell you the guys are slower. Okay. But there is one circumstance under which guys start making more and more estrogen out of their testosterone. And that happens to be something that one-third the men in these United States have a tendency to do when they get over age 45, 50, like that, maybe age 40 these days. Why so many guys would start making too much of their testosterone and estrogen? And if anybody wants, ever wants any proof of that, just to walk on the beach one sunny day and, oh, yeah, here comes an older guy with uh, <clears throat> breasts. Yeah, hmm? okay. Why would so many guys do this? One in three, aren't I overclaiming? No, I'm not. I'm following government statistics. Oh, dear. According to one or another federal agency, over 100 million people in our country have a tendency to, not a ten, not they have it, but they have a tendency, the genetic tendency to get type 2 diabetes. Wow, that's a lot. Yep, but those are the stats. Okay. Well, that genetic tendency to make type 2 diabetes is something that is simmering, 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 simmering for all of our lives. If we have a genetic tendency, we have a genetic tendency from when we're born, but it just goes simmer, 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 and if we are following the wrong diet, eating too much sugar, too much carb uh, particularly, that will aggravate that tendency, and ultimately it will end up in type 2 diabetes even if we happen to be 45 or 50 by the time it gets us there. But on the road to the type 2 diabetes, the, the basic underlying disruption for the whole thing is the people who have that tendency to type 2 diabetes make much more insulin than people who don't have a tendency to type 2 diabetes hmm. when they eat sugar and carb. They just make much more insulin. And that's just a fact. One can look it up in the textbooks. It's called hyperinsulinemia, by the way. Um, okay, that extra insulin doesn't cause any trouble if it's just there for a little while. But if it's there all the time, the body develops this thing called insulin resistance. Imagine, Richard, that you're a kid and your mom's yelling, or your dad would be more likely, is yelling at you all the time. After a while, you turn tune out. Well, if your body is yelling out too much insulin, after a while, the insulin receptors sort of turn tune out. So then dad yells louder. And for a while, you pay attention. And then you tune out again. And that's what the insulin and the insulin receptors play that game too. More insulin, more tuning out. Even more insulin, more tuning out. Even more insulin, more tuning out. And that goes on literally for decades. And by the way, during that time, it can be detected very easily by measuring that insulin signal. And you can find out if you're on the road to type 2 diabetes and stop it before you ever get it 
but that's another topic. Um, I do a lot of talks on how to detect type 2 diabetes years before you get it and then make it go away before you ever get it. Um, anyway, that high insulin signal, where I'm going with that, activates the enzyme that turns testosterone into estrogen. That's the key. Wow. And while we're... Yeah, and while we're at it, that high insulin signal activates the enzyme that gets our livers to make too much cholesterol. And while we're at it, that high insulin signal gets our kidneys to make our blood pressure go up. And so this thing we hear about, which is called metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh uh-huh, and ultimately type 2 diabetes... That's all due to one thing. It's due to a high insulin signal. But that high insulin signal, to get back to hormones, makes guys make too much of their testosterone into estrogen. And so getting to an entirely, what shall I call it, silly omission from all of these studies which say that, oh, the testosterone is going to kill the guys, they didn't check one of them to see if any of them were turning testosterone into too much estrogen. They didn't check. And one in three of them is doing that. Now, too much estrogen is not good for guys. It isn't. And too much isn't good for ladies either, but at least it's not as hard on them. It's particularly not good for the prostate gland, but it's not good for guys. And none of these guys in any of those studies were checked to see if they were making too much estrogen. We check that all the time. What I mean by we is the doctors at Tahoma Clinic which, again, is where bioidentical hormones got started, which is why we're on top of the testing and the ways of doing it as safely as possible. So anyway, it's that high insulin signal. And over and oh, oh, the other thing that's common to this metabolic syndrome is what's called, politely, central obesity, which means you've got a big tummy, um, basically. Um, and the high insulin signal leads to that, too. So... I'd say at least once every other week, in comes a guy, and he's got a prescription for one of those patent statin medications that that cuts down Mm. the cholesterol, and another prescription for cutting down his blood pressure. And I'm asking, did anybody tell you that your problem was not due to a deficiency of patent medications? Your problem is due to a high (laughs) insulin signal. Oh, wow! what do I do about that? Yeah. Wow. What do I do about that? Well, there's this thing out there called the paleo diet, and there's something called the interval training for exercise, and there are certain vitamins and minerals, and there's one very important botanical that knocks down the insulin signal safely uh, just by helping to re-regulate the way things work in a safe fashion. And you can do that, and by the way, your cholesterol will come down and you won't need that statin anymore, and your blood pressure will come down and you won't need that medication anymore. Oh, yes, and you'll quit turning your testosterone into too much estrogen, which is why your your testosterone is going low, too. And by the way, if I give you a testosterone prescription right now, with you having a high insulin signal, you know what's going to happen. You're not going to notice that much. You might have a rush for a few days, but then the body's going to say, "Uh uh-oh, Ah, uh, I got to metabolize all that testosterone and estrogen. That's what I hear is a rush for a few days and then it goes away. Well, very fortunately, there are botanical medicines that have been used in mostly China and India for absolutely centuries to help guys with their testosterone. Did they know how it worked over there? No. But research in the 20th century found out that what those things do is to 
slow down the enzyme that makes testosterone turn into estrogen. So we can have guys use those while they're doing, and those I would call a Band-Aid. They're still a Band-Aid, but at least they're not as dangerous. They don't cause cognitive decline like statins do, for example. Um, or strip out the CoQ10 or, out of the heart muscle or any other number of things. Yeah, yeah. all of those things, and, and the botanicals don't do that. But I have to tell people, or the guys particularly, don't rely on that forever. That's a Band-Aid. That's just keeping things under control in the testosterone and estrogen department. The real remedy is going on the appropriate diet, getting rid of the sugar, getting rid of the carbs. Um, the paleo diet gets rid of dairy, grain, sugar, carbs uh, for anybody who hasn't seen it. Thank goodness it's become a craze because it's deserved to be a craze. Um, wow. And it never hurt anybody either. So <laughs> Exactly. It did nothing paleo- good. Yeah, And then there's the interval training, which is the really intense type of exercise. You know, cavemen didn't go jogging. What would a caveman go jogging for? Uh, <laughs> no point. Get plenty of exercise. Cavemen only ran when they wanted to catch lunch or avoid being lunch or to avoid being killed. And they ran like yeah. heck. And that's interval training, running like heck. Yeah. So there's that and the vitamins and minerals and stuff. And then, and that usually takes anywhere from six months to 18 months, to totally reverse one's tendency to type 2 diabetes. And uh, some engineers have proved that point to me very well by doing their test before, after, and insisting on doing it at certain intervals and stuff. I like working with engineers. They like data. Uh, they love data. So, yeah, data, data, data. That's a wonderful you know, point that by going back to giving the body the opportunity to do, if you give it the necessary nutrition, the body will try and right itself. Puns well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And really, that's why sooner or later, sooner or later, even conventional medical doctors have got to come to the understanding that our bodies are not made out of artificial molecules. If artificial molecules, otherwise known as patent medicines, otherwise known as drugs, were so good for us why we would pack all the pregnant ladies full of drugs so she'd have a healthy kid, wouldn't we? Duh. Um, No. That's like trying to fix your Chevy with Pontiac parts. Well, that might work as General Motors. Okay, it's like trying to fix your Chevy (laughs) with Ford parts. Yeah, with Porsche parts. Mm -hmm. It isn't going to do the job. Amazing. Well, I, I, I hate to say this, Dr. Wright, but I can't believe it, but we, we're out of time. I'm, I'm shocked. Uh-oh. I knew it would go fast, but I didn't think it would go that fast. I still want to have a whole conversation yeah. going from this exact point, talking about high insulin type 2 and then getting it, uh, that under control and balancing out the testosterone and the hormones and then moving toward the paleo diet and living longer and healthier and being sexy and, you know, living well. Man, but don't forget we keeping now. all our marbles. Okay. Marbles. Yes, keeping all the marbles. This was really fabulous. I knew it was going to be great, and it was really wonderful. I think we have to have you back in a while and talk about insulin diet, not jogging, or as I like to call it, running away from dinosaurs. Nothing like making you really want to go out and be an active runner. Have a dinosaur chasing you. That'll do it. (laughs) There you go. Or even just a tiger. Yeah. <laughs> Dinosaurs always, to me, seemed like they were slightly slower, so I'm less scared. But the tiger, I... Oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, tigers. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And people can... Uh, where can people find out more information about you and the Tahoma Clinic and all that? Well, of course, we have the usual website, and it's just all the W's and TahomaClinic.com. And 
one can read there if one wants to. Uh, the book that you just mentioned, and thank you very much, um, was titled by the publisher because they want to sell books, Stay Young and Sexy with Bioidentical Hormones. And yes, most of it is directed toward the ladies because the ladies were more interested in hormone replacement. But there's a chapter in there for the guys, too. I uh, put out a book with Dr. Leonard in 1997, though, about hormone replacement for guys um, with all the science up to that time. And despite all this stuff about testosterone will kill us, uh-uh, it isn't so, guys. And similarly... If a lady's hormones are done right and she checks all her cancer risk factors, then her risk is about the same as it would have been when she was much younger. No greater, no less. Isn't that amazing? That's a great close. Thank you so much, Doctor. That was that's perfect. That's you know, a point I wanted you to make that really we can do this. It's okay, it's safe. You monitor yourself and it's safe and you'll feel better and be smart too. It's a great thing. You bet. Also, I have a newsletter people can find about it. It's an on-paper newsletter, no less. People can find out about wow. that at the website, too. Yeah. Or just put in my last name and newsletter, something like writenewsletter.com. Perfect. Thanks again, Doctor. It's been a, a very fast hour. <laughs> well, thanks to you and Sherry for uh, putting this out so that people can uh, oh, find out more stuff about their health. You bet. It's all about we can be healthy. I mean, we actually can be healthy. It's amazing. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye.